Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to John chapter 10 this morning. John chapter 10. Uh, we've been looking the uh, last uh, two weeks prior to this one uh, at a series, short series called Worshiping the Christ of Christmas. And it's based on the I am statements that are in the Gospel of John. There's one absolute statement. Well, actually, a form which is absolute, which is actually mentioned more than once. We only looked at it once, but Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And when I say absolute, there's no modifier like the other seven. There are seven of them in which he says, I am the, and then fills it in. So one form of it is just an absolute statement of his existence. And so we looked at that uh, the first week as the person of Christmas, the eternal son of God became flesh so that we might be saved. He existed before the world began, John chapter 17. He, he is a person, and, and when he came into this world, he didn't become another person so that there was a human person and a divine person, but that he remained the singular person who now joined in himself a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. The miracle of the incarnation is that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that you and I might receive salvation through him. And at the center then of Christmas must be the worship, the, the, the awe and adoration of this one who is the Christ. Last week, we looked at four of the modified statements of it, where he said, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, and then the way, the truth, and the life. And so we looked at those, and I actually put it under, uh, under the label of the purpose of Christmas. And, and really at the center of what I think those four were teaching is that humanity is, is uh, in darkness and death, right? So we, we love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. We are actually dead in our trespasses and sins. And so Jesus presents himself as the light of the world to dispel the darkness and as the bread of life to defeat death. And between those two categories, if I could put it that way, came those statements by Jesus, I am the door. So how do you go from darkness and death to light and life? You can only go through the door, which is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. So his purpose in coming was to establish the way for us to be rescued from darkness and death, was for us to come back into the fellowship of the one who is light and who is life. Jesus is the door. He's the way, the truth, and the life. This morning, I'd like us to look at three more statements by Jesus, which I believe in some way, and, and, and I'll confess I've framed them the way that I want to frame them, which is the privilege you get when you're the preacher. You can categorize them the way you want. So I'm actually 
providing, seeing this as the provision of Christmas. What does this person who came to open up this way, what does he, what does he provide for us? What does he uh, bring to us in that way? And so we're going to look at three, the last three, and we're, we're going to go through them in the way that they're unfolded in the Gospel of John, just like we did last week. Look at John chapter 10 and verse 11. John chapter 10 and verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then drop down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So what I did last week, I'm going to do again. I, I just, uh, we're doing a survey of these, context, meaning, and significance. So the context of this one is the same context uh, in the immediate surroundings of the door, which John 10 opens up because of John 9. In John 9, the, the leaders of Israel show themselves to be hirelings and, and thieves and robbers. Right? Jesus heals a man born blind, and, and they have no interest in that. All they want to do is actually find out who it was that told him to do something on the Sabbath day. And so they set up this tribunal where they're examining the, the man and then examining his parents and doing so with a harshness that is really not, uh, they're not going, where is this guy so that we can worship him? They're actually rejecting him and wanting to punish Christ for what he's done and are ready to punish these others. So the contrast between them as false shepherds and Jesus as the good shepherd is what's going on. But it's not just this immediate context when you come to this shepherd metaphor or imagery, because it's one that, that has a deep, uh, very deep history in the Old Testament, which helps inform the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. You remember what Jesus says there? He looks out at the crowd and he sees them like sheep who are scattered and without a shepherd. And he has compassion on them. He describes Israel as being a shepherdless flock that's just sort of roaming the hillside. And, and so that language that Jesus uses is actually picking up language from the Old Testament. So we'll come back here to chapter 10 of John, but I'd like to look at two uh, two books in the Old Testament and a couple of chapters there that help us understand that. So let me, let me ask you to turn to the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah in chapter 23. So in the major prophets, you have Isaiah, then Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, Israel has come under judgment from God and and is being scattered to the nations, and Jesus or uh, God through the prophet is laying the indictment of that against the shepherds of Israel. Look at Jeremiah chapter twenty three, 
and verses one through three. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. So you see the, the, the indictment against the shepherds of Israel and the promise by God that he would raise up a shepherd. And then beginning in verse five, it actually enters into a prophecy about David's son. Look at verse five. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in his land, uh, in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So let me just uh, tie two threads together because here's the, the, a part of the problem for us is that we, uh, tend to view shepherd in a way that's limited compared to the way the scriptures do. Right? So when David was the king of Israel, he was called having been raised up to shepherd my people Israel. That's why this text moves seamlessly from my people are scattered because they don't have shepherds to I'm going to raise up somebody who will rule over them. That is be their shepherd. I will shepherd my people. In fact, one of the the famous uh, lines that people will quote about Jesus, rightfully so, from Psalm 2 and then quoted again in the book of Revelation is that he will rule them with a rod of iron. The word rod there is a shepherd's crook. That Jesus is going to be the shepherd king who rules over all the nations. So the Old Testament imagery of the shepherd was not limited to just what we sometimes think of just like pastoral kind of care. It was actually someone who led the people, fed and cared for them, protected them, provided for them. All right, that's Jeremiah chapter 23. Uh, go up to Jeremiah chapter 50, please. Jeremiah chapter 50, look at verses 6, beginning in verse 6. My people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have made them to turn aside on the mountains. They have gone along from mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. All who came upon them have devoured them, and their adversaries have said, We are not guilty, inasmuch they have sinned against the Lord who is the habitation of righteousness, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Again, you can see the imagery of calling the people who were responsible to lead the nation as shepherds, and they've led them astray. And again, the description of the people like sheep, they're lost sheep who've, who've just been turned out into the mountains and have no 
pasture, no place to be cared for. So that's the indictment that was against them in Israel. Go next book over, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. Start in verse 1, please. Ezekiel 34. I'll begin reading verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The disease, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for a lack of, shep- lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field, and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. You hear that in the backdrop when Jesus is saying he sees them as sheep having no shepherd, right? He's looking at Israel and going, these are the people that God has owned as his own and they have no one to shepherd them. They don't have someone to lead them to the place of nourishment and to protect them. They have been scattered, and the shepherds are at fault for that. So look what they then says in verses 11 and 12. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out, as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day, and when he is among his scattered sheep, So I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Drop down to verses 23 and 24. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken, right? So here's where it comes uh, in terms of the the deeper level backdrop to Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, right? There's an immediate contrast with the leaders of Israel who are not shepherding the people. The the people are like sheep scattered with no shepherd. The, The people who ought to be shepherding the flock, in fact, are not caring for the flock they, they simply want to hold on to their power. That's John 9. But that's not something that just happened. That's something that goes all the way back to the exile. So you're talking hundreds of years before this, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were saying, look what's happened to Israel because the shepherds have not cared for them. They've, they've instead of caring for the flock, have fed themselves. They've taken care of their own desires and needs, and they've not taken care of the sheep. And so God said through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I will shepherd my sheep. 
I will raise up a shepherd for them of my servant David. And, and Jesus is the fulfillment to that. He's the son of David, who's going to be the prince over his people, who will shepherd his people. So when Jesus stands up in John 10, if you go back there and says, I am the good shepherd, it's against that entire Old Testament imagery, the spiritual condition of the people and of its leaders that he says, I am the one who has come to shepherd my people. I am come to actually, instead of run in the face of danger, right? The hireling runs. The thief is only seeking to take what he wants. Instead of that, look what he says he will do in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He is saying that the essence of his care for the sheep is demonstrated even to the point of laying his life down for them. So those shepherds being rebuked in Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 50 and Ezekiel 34 who were taking advantage of the flock and were ready to kill the sheep to take care of themselves, along comes Jesus and he says, I will lay down my life for my sheep. I will know them and they will know me. And that kind of knowledge is like the father and the son. That, and, and so it's not, a, it's not primarily an intellectual, oh, hey, I know that guy. This is a relational knowledge. There is a closeness of relationship between the father and son that Jesus will establish with his sheep. Because in chapter 17, he'll say, as the father and I are one, so make them one. Join them to me so that I am their shepherd and they are my sheep. And all through the rest of John 10, he's talking about this, that they will hear his voice and follow him that he will protect them and no one can take them out of his hand because he is going to lay down his life for them and take it back up again. Look at verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This commandment I received from my Father. So uh, any, any idea or thought about the death of Christ that sees it as being some type of accidental outcome of the rejection of Israel completely misunderstands what in fact God was doing in Christ. He he could not have his life taken from him by anybody. But he could lay it down. And the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he lays it down precisely so that he can take it back up again. That's what the text says. He dies so that he can rise again. And it's that combo of purposeful death 
with powerful resurrection that makes him the shepherd who can protect his sheep, makes him the shepherd who who will never have any of his sheep plucked out of his hand. That's what he says down verse 28 and 29, right? That he gives them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand because he has laid down his life and then taken it back up so he has the authority to give eternal life and he has the power to protect his sheep. No one will scatter them to the hills again. No one will be able to, to attack and devour his sheep because he is the good shepherd. So I, we started here not just because this is chapter 10, but I think also that this is actually a key concept to get from which the next two grow out of, right? It's because Jesus is the good shepherd that he can give life to his sheep and that that life can be described as abundant life. In fact, look at verse 10, because here's here's what he says there as he transitions from being the door to the good shepherd right? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. All right, so I am the good shepherd. Turn to chapter 11 and verse 25, because here's the second in our survey this morning. 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus, again, is is making a statement about himself, uh, a, a claim. I am the resurrection and the life. And again, the context is uh, immediate one is, is Lazarus' death. If you're familiar with what happens in chapter 11, uh, Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. And rather than immediately respond to that, he waits. He, he doesn't go immediately. And then he goes. And, and his purpose in that was because he wanted to see the glory of God displayed. And that's, he says that very clearly up in the early part of the chapter. And when he gets to uh, the, the, the sisters, their immediate reaction and other people around, well, if you had been here, he wouldn't have needed to die, right? Because Jesus had healed all kinds of people. I mean, he had the power to drive away sickness. So, so it, it's, not, it's not like a wishful thinking thing. I mean, if this guy could actually, up to this point, has raised the dead and has healed the sick, he could have vanquished the illness that was going to kill Lazarus. But it was God's purpose not to do that in the time that, that everybody else wanted because God had a purpose for these people to see, but also for us to learn about it. Because what happened to Lazarus is actually what will happen to all of us. Right? So we can see in Lazarus the reality of death 
and, and that Christ is the answer to death, not just for Lazarus, because in fact, Lazarus was going to, Lazarus was going to die again. We, we, we often talk about it as the resurrection, but it might be more accurate to call his a resuscitation. Because when a person actually is resurrected, they will never die again. But Lazarus came back to life and then died later. That's unlike what Jesus is going to do and unlike what Jesus promises to all. So he says here something that isn't just for Lazarus. It's not just for Martha and Mary. It's for us that, that Jesus, because he has life in himself, right? Because he, he has it in himself and he will rise from the dead. He has the power of resurrection and life because he has this authority in himself. He's able to grant life and give resurrection because he himself will conquer the dead. And, and wrapped up in what's going on here with this conversation, if you look at verses 25 and 26, and then Martha's response in, in verse 27, she said, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even who he comes into the world. And, and she had said already in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus makes some statements here that help us see that the most important life that you can have is actually spiritual, not physical life, right? Because the, the, the language he uses at the end of verse 25, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. Right? That's, that if, if we have a, uh, an exclusively materialistic view of human existence, that does not make sense, right? He, he can't live if he dies. That's impossible, right? You can't have a physical body that's both alive and dead at the same time. So Jesus must be referring to another kind of life. If he lives, even if he dies, right? So physically, his life might come to an end, but that's not all the life that there is in a human. Right? You can be alive spiritually and therefore be said to be dead physically or like 1 Thessalonians 4 says, asleep in Jesus. Right? Probably every, almost all of us in this room have been to a funeral and we recognize if we have a biblical frame of understanding that the physical body is dead, but the person has not ceased existence, that there's both material and immaterial parts to humanity. And, and that immaterial part can be described, like Jesus is saying, as being alive. He, he will live even if he dies. And then verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Well, well, Jesus, what do you mean? I mean, Lazarus is in the tomb and he's been there for four days. What do you mean he will never die? He clearly can't mean he won't die physically. He must be meaning 
he has a kind of life that cannot die. That, that there is a life from God given to the spirit, which cannot be taken away. And therefore, he can have this confidence at the face of the death of someone that he loved and someone that people he loved loved. He could stand in front of it and recognize that there's a kind of life that's more important than physical life. And that kind of life cannot be taken away. It's described as eternal. And the need for and benefits of spiritual life are now, not just at the end. Because she's saying, well, I know at the last day he'll be raised as if somehow he's in a, in a state where he's, he's in nim, limbo, right? Do you believe your brother will rise? Well, I know he will at the last day. And Jesus brings her back into the now and says, he's still alive, right? We would say it in the words of Paul, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That we don't leave this world and go into some kind of nothingness or some kind of soul sleep where we have no interaction and no dynamic of life. Because the life we have been given to us, if we are born again, if we have been made alive in the spirit, is something that exists now, live up to the point of death, right? We'll never die. You are alive now and that lasts for all of eternity because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who can give that. And so what's important, I think, for us to remember in terms of the larger series is that this life comes from a person, not a creed, not a church. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, this will be the case. Because the tendency, uh, the tendency in religion is to shift the attention away from Christ to the forms and patterns and ways of living. And, and while while we must never abandon the concept of a creed because the Bible warns us about people who claim to talk about Jesus, but it's a different Jesus than the one that was preached in Paul's preaching. Right? Not everyone who claims to love Jesus loves the Jesus of the Bible. They have a Jesus of their own making, right? So if I'm talking with somebody and, and they tell me they, they love Jesus, they, they, you know, they love God, um, the, the, the line of questioning will be trying to find out exactly what they believe about that Jesus. 
because the Jesus who is the good shepherd and the Jesus who is the resurrection of the life is not some hollow, empty form that we can fill up with whatever we want. Right? We, can't, we can't just make up our Jesus. We need to actually understand the truth about Jesus as revealed in the scriptures. Jesus said, search the scriptures, these are they which speak of me. Right? So the content of my understanding of who Jesus is must be filled by the scriptures. Nothing I'm saying in any way tries to dismiss that. But there's something different between knowing what the Bible says about Jesus and actually having trusted that Jesus. Because it's possible that sometimes we might think that what really is going to happen is an entrance exam when we get to heaven. God's going to hand us a quiz, and if we get all the answers right, you passed, come on in. And, and that would be a form of us trusting in our own knowledge, trusting in our own database of who Jesus is. If I say the right creed, I've got the secret password and I can get in. And that's what I mean by it's actually not that you can answer the right questions. It's where have you put your trust for salvation? Because you know who can answer those questions? James says the demons can. If you read the Gospels, they got it right. I mean, you're the Christ, the Son of God. But they had no heart to receive him, to worship him, to trust in him. It's not just information about Jesus that saves us. It is a heart of response to that truth, which gives ourselves to him. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the good shepherd. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, we own that confession of Christ. He is who he claims to be and does what he promises to do. Therefore, I trust in him. Okay? And he provides life. He's the resurrection and the life. Let me ask you to go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Here's our third statement for this morning. Just like in John 10, he calls himself the good shepherd twice. This one is uh, variation is twice. Look at 15.1. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Look down to verse five. I am the vine you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So again, the context, uh, this one's a little, um, well, I, I shouldn't say harder. It's, it's possibly 
Uh, it's a, a little more cloaked, I'd say. But, but look at the last part of verse 14. It says, get up, let us go from here. All right, so, so they've been observing uh, what we've come to call Lord's Supper, the Passover. He introduces the Lord's Supper. He's given them some instructions, says, get up and let us go from here. And, and you know where they're going. They're headed out toward the garden. So they're in the city of Jerusalem and they're gonna head up to the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be, betray, be praying and then betrayed. All right, so, so here's what we can, I think we can say uh, fairly confidently that there must have been something along the way that prompted Jesus to go into this metaphor, All right? Some suggest it was passing by the temple because on the outside of the temple actually were etchings of, of large vines and then clusters of grapes that came down using the Old Testament imagery of God having planted Israel as his vineyard and, and the vine of his blessing. And so that was on the temple. And so some would suggest that as Jesus passed by, he could say, I am the true vine, right? Or it could have been as they're going through the valley up to, to, the, to the Mount of Olives across the, if, yeah, I'm assuming you've been there, but you ever seen pictures, right? You've got the temple mount, and the eastern side of it, there's a valley. Then there's the mount where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And you can actually pass through that valley and across. And it's possible as he was passing through that valley, they were walking through a vineyard. And he said, I'm the true vine. I'm the vine. I think it could have been simply prompted by those physical things with some reference to what was said about the vine in the Old Testament, probably because that's why the word true is there. Right? Didn't you say, I'm the vine. I'm the vine. See those, see those grapes? I'm the vine. He says, I'm the true vine. Right? If you're actually going to have life, it can only come if you are joined to me. You must abide in me because out of me flows real life, All right? So he's establishing himself as the source of and provision of the life and nourishment that they need to bear fruit. Because remember at verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Look at verse seven. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. All right, so Jesus is establishing himself as the source of their spiritual life and vitality. They need to abide in him have his words abide in them. That even though he's going to be leaving, right? That's what he's preparing them for. Their health and vitality spiritually is going to be tied to their remaining in close relationship with Jesus Christ 
through his word. That his word is what actually has cleansed them. Look at verse two and into three, right? I'm sorry, verse three. You are clean, already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. So Jesus is the source of their life, but not just eternal life. We could say, like John 10, abundant life, fruitful life. They would bear much fruit by virtue of their relationship to Christ. And that relationship should has been established and should be cultivated. Abide in my words and have my word abide in you. Ask and you will bear much fruit. Right, so, so Jesus is bringing them to the reality that it's, it's not just who he is, but that everything that they need flows from him. Right, that, that he actually is the source of these things. He is the resurrection and the life that solves their ultimate eternal danger, but not just is he the resurrection and the life, he is the vine from which all of their fruitfulness will flow. And that's why I had you look at chapter 10, verse 10. I have come that you might have life, eternal life. You might have life and have it abundantly. That what Jesus provided for us by his coming into the world is to give us a life which can never end and is actually overflowing now. His intention for his people is that we would experience the life of Jesus Christ. We abide in him and he in us so that we bear fruit. He's a vine from which we are fruit-bearing branches. All right, so let me bring them all back together. Because what I said was, I believe the shepherd imagery actually is the one that grows out into these other two. All right, so, so the shepherd of God's people, because he lays down his life for them and calls them to be his own, and they hear his voice, are protected by the shepherd against any threat, the grace of which is death. I've laid down my life for them and I've taken it up. They have eternal life and no one can pluck them out of my hand. The shepherd, the shepherd will lead his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death and they will fear no evil because we were given a shepherd to walk that path with. The shepherd will feed and nourish his sheep. He will provide for them everything that they need for their health and prosperity. He will lead them by still waters. He will take them out into fertile pastures. He will prepare a table for them, even in the presence of their enemies, because the shepherd is taking care of his sheep. At the center of what Christmas is, is that that baby 
who's laid in a manger is going to be the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. And he will provide for those who hear his voice and trust in him everything that they need, everything, everything they need for this life and that which is to come. He is the shepherd of our souls, to which the scripture says, if we've expressed faith, we have returned from our straying to the one who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 25. It is a powerful image of the glory of Christ that this one who existed in eternity past became flesh so that he might open up the way from darkness to light and death to life. And when we come through him, he becomes our shepherd who will protect us against all enemies and provide for us everything that we need for life and godliness. What a great and glorious shepherd he is. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning with gratefulness in our heart that the eternal plan of the triune God was to provide a Savior in Jesus who is everything that we need, that he cares for us like a shepherd tenderly cares for his sheep, that he has in his arms the well-being of his people, and he carries in his hand the rod and staff that will lead us and protect us, will keep us until the end. We are grateful that he, he is not just a shepherd, but the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And we praise you that he took it back up again so that today he's seated at your right hand, the great shepherd of our souls. May we worship him as we celebrate Christmas. May there be the opening of understanding this morning for some who perhaps have trusted in religion or their own perceived righteousness or moral efforts, charitable engagement to think that they could somehow rescue themselves. Lord, please open their eyes to see that unless the shepherd gathers them into the fold, they will be lost. But he is a shepherd who came to seek and to save that which is lost. That there's rejoicing in heaven over any sinner who repents. Lord, give us that joy in our own heart over your saving mercies. And may that joy be experienced today by someone who calls on the name of Christ, believing in him as the one who can rescue and redeem. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.